It's good to be back with you. Um, I know you've all had a lot of fun this summer. Uh, you're all more than half-baked. Uh, you're cooked clean through if you've lived here or visited. I suppose you've had that experience too. But uh, hey, I'm going to get started here with you. There's, um, I want to bring our thoughts today a bit to uh, the scripture that uh, Joey had you stand and read together. And I wanted to make an observation that there are many influences in our lives that shape what we believe and what we become. Um, many of those influences are the lives that are, of people that are close to us, our parents, our siblings, relatives, friends, teachers, and uh, in our culture today, media personalities. Uh, it's just a whole lot of different influences that come our way. Um, the experiences of our life, uh, things we didn't anticipate, things we anticipated and wish hadn't or were glad and celebrated that they did. But the experiences of our life have shaped us, um, how we think and what we are today. Some of these both to a positive end and some to a negative end. Um, there were a couple of influences, uh, in one sense insignificant, and on the other hand, very significant influences in my life, and they were um, two plaques that my mom hung on my bedroom wall. And the um, first one I want to show you is an image of a biblical truth that's still firm in my memory. It's a picture of Jesus standing and knocking at a door. Uh, do you have that on the screen? Uh, um, maybe we don't have. Well, there you are. You got it. Um, if any of you have lived longer than close to me anyway, um, you would recognize this picture and you'd recognize the painting. You'd recognize the image of Jesus. It was painted up by a, a, an artist named Solomon. And um, he, uh, in my days and youth and coming to faith, uh, this was the public image of Jesus in, in our world, in our country. But... Uh, uh, the picture here is uh, Jesus standing at the door and knocking. But if you look at the arch at the top of the door and the arch to the left uh, on the overhang, you see it shaping a heart. And uh, there's a light in the picture in this. The meaning of this is there Jesus standing, knocking at the door of our heart, uh, waiting, wishing to enter. But when I saw this picture, I asked my mom, well, what is that all about? And uh, so she quoted to me um, a, a verse from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And a thought that Jesus pursues each one of us to an intimate relationship with himself was very significant to me as a kid. And it's even more significant to me today. The picture of this comes out of a text in Revelation chapter 3. It's a, a statement to a, one of the seven churches in what would be today Turkey. Um, but it was Asia, as it was known at the time, the seven churches of Asia. And there was one church, Laodicea, um, that was noted for being neither hot nor cold. Uh, it wasn't really excited about the Lord, nor was it dead. It was lukewarm, and Jesus wasn't very pleased with them. And, uh, but I've always used this statement, this verse. I've quoted this verse often with someone who has never come to faith. I just said, I want you to know the Lord's knocking on your heart's door. He wants in. And you can open the door. It's your call. 
And uh, but then when I read this in Revelation, I realized this is a statement that was made to the church. And here's Jesus standing at the door of the heart of believers in Laodicea and said, will you let me in? Let me in and we'll sit down and have dinner together. We'll celebrate together. We'll have communion together. We'll have relationship together. You with me and me with you. Now, what a beautiful image. But that has marked me in my life, in my sense of intimacy and closeness with God. At the times when I felt the most distance, when I felt I disappointed him, uh, that he was angry at me, or at times when I was angry at him because he didn't do what I wanted him to do, or things didn't play out the way I are, I keep coming back to this. He's just knocking at my heart's door and said, I'm here for you. I love you. You're mine. Let me in. And there was another plaque that uh, hung on my wall. And is this one. It's a picture of the head of Jesus, but there's a, a statement that comes with it. It says, uh, ye, or in current day English, you, um, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And that's John chapter 8, verse 32. And it was part of the passage we read this morning. I've often reflected on that and I thought, uh, truth makes you free. It sets you free. And then I thought, truth and freedom. Um, how is freedom related to this truth? Uh, how is it if you know the truth, there's freedom there? And then I thought, well, what's the opposite of truth? A lie. And so something's a truth or it's a lie. And then I got to thinking about it, and that is that when I tell a lie, when I'm not right up front honest about something and describe it the way it is, or I shade it in some way, or I slice its meaning, I slant it in a certain way, uh, I'm not fully telling the truth or I'm flat out telling a lie. That I just stepped into bondage, not freedom. And the reason I say that is that I'm never free when I tell a lie. I'm always on guard to keep my lie a secret. I have to protect that lie. I don't want to be found out. And so I end up telling another lie. And I just step into deeper and deeper bondage. Telling a lie results in bondage. On the other hand, if I tell the truth, freedom is what I experience. I'm free when I tell the truth. I have nothing to hide. I said it the way I understand it. I said it as it is. And I, in that context, have freedom from guilt that may come. I have been, I've been with integrity, expressed what was real in my heart and my life in that moment. I've told the truth. These uh, thoughts came real to me as a kid in two situations that happened probably within the same year, maybe at least the same two years in my grade school years. I went to a grade school friend's uh, uh, birthday party. And um, his grandfather gave him a brand new silver dollar. And he left it on the table while everything went on. And I picked it up and took it because I was, thought it was really beautiful. I didn't think that I was taking it. I just really liked it. And I picked it up and I put it in my pocket. And I got home and um, I had even forgotten about it. I got home and I emptied my pockets and I said, oh, I have the coin. He's going to think I stole that. 
I never thought that that's really what I did. But I thought in that moment, how do I tell him? I can't tell him. Then he'll think I'm dishonest. He won't trust me anymore. He won't be my friend. And so I, I struggled with that for nearly two weeks. And the guilt wore me down to I, I went. I couldn't even face my friend in person. I went to his house and I went to his mom of all crazy things. I went to his mom and I said, this is the coin that, that Ronnie got for his birthday. And I picked it up and put it in my pocket. And it doesn't belong to me. And it didn't belong in my pocket. And I just, I hear. And she, she made a big deal out of that. That she uh, praised me that I was honest in, in returning it. And, and that I felt remorse for that. And she said that you did the right thing. And, and I felt pretty good about that. It didn't feel quite as bad. Uh, until I reflected on it 60 years later. And I got... Jerk. <laughs> Here we are. But another thing that happened was uh, my mom made made a statement. She said, "Mom and Dad were going out to dinner someplace, and she was looking for some jewelry to put on. And there was one particular necklace that she was going to wear, and uh, she couldn't find it. And she said, I 'I don't know what happened to my necklace.' I went, and then I'm going, "Oh no, I didn't put it back.'" I borrowed some of mom's jewelry because we were playing pirates and we needed a pirate chest. So I put jewelry, some mom's jewelry, in this little box. It's a treasure chest. I thought that was really cool. Well, that was another one of those moments of honesty. Do you tell the truth? Do you tell a lie? I uh, told the truth and I got beat. And I'm going somewhere this. uh, Sometimes telling the truth, there could be a penalty, but it's because I told a lie. And I, I found my way around uh, that uh, if you're honest, uh, sometimes it may result in punishment. But if I tell the truth, I really don't have much fear of that. I, am, I have a sense of freedom from punishment, from guilt, when I just speak the truth. And so I saw a, kind, a, a distinction here between telling the truth, telling a lie, and freedom. And then, uh, I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago that, uh, as a matter of fact, it was in preparation for a message here 12 years ago. And um, the, uh, I was uh, here speaking on a Sunday morning about freedom. And it wasn't from John 8. It was from Galatians uh, chapter 5. But... Um, it was in preparation for that that I reflected on some of the things I've just said to you. And I went back in my preparation for that passage. I, I, would, I was here in John 8 looking at uh, that, that he is, he is uh, inviting us to walk in the freedom of speaking the truth and knowing the truth. And I read this text, John 8:32. I read the text. I read all of the text around it. I wanted to get the context down. And what is this message um, that, that I find in this statement? Uh, uh, that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, there's a statement before that that's a conditional statement. And so I read, I just studied a little bit more on this, and I said, there's something about this statement about the freedom that comes to us with truth that happens if. And what precedes this statement in uh, 
John 8:32 is this statement in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. My interest in God's word is a marker of my discipleship. If I abide in his word, then you are truly my disciples. And if I abide in his word, it's also the source of truth and freedom for me. So this passage is not just about truth and lies and freedom. It has to do as being the end result of one who pursues God in his word, abides in it. And so I look at this, this just that verse again, and I look at 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth if you're in my word, and this truth will set you free. I'm camping on these thoughts today with you. To abide um, means to remain, literally means to be at home in, in the Greek. To be at home in. To abide in. To remain in. To stay with. To be at home in God's Word. Abiding in the Word is more than casual interest. It's more than listening on Sunday morning. It's when you go home. And you have a moment, you open the book, and, and, and you read some of what God has written to us. It's in a morning when I get up, and I, and I just want to get my head in the right, right place for the day. And I read some, some thought in the Psalms, or I, I read some of the, the instructions that Paul gave to the churches. I, I, read, uh, I read about God's love for me and God's call upon my life and what God wants me to do in a day. And I read about his promises and about his warnings and his instructions in life. I read about his grace and his mercy. I read about his justice. I learn about who he is as a person and what's important to him. I live in his word. Somehow that got ingrained to me when I was just a kid. Came to faith at 14. But somewhere in those years, in my high school years, it got ingrained in me that God's word is essential to me in my walk and my life and faith in Christ. And John just recorded this, this statement from Jesus in this way, that uh, the word's going to be important to you, Ed. Spend time in it. Get to know it. Paul validates the, the value of the scriptures uh, in his letters to the churches. I'm thinking of Romans chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word is the source of our faith. How else would you know about Jesus if it weren't recorded in this book? You would know a little bit from a Roman historian, a Jew, by the way, Josephus. You would know by some of the other Roman historians who wrote about this guy, um, the Jesus of Nazareth that Pilate crucified. Uh, You would read in some contemporary histories of that period of time something about the man Jesus. He was real. He lived. It's not folklore. 
But I learn about the heart of God. God's following in life and relationship to Israel and out of the nation of Israel would come his son, the one who would deliver all of us. And that is Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness after he'd uh, been fasting for 40 days, uh, uh, Satan says, uh, you know, you're the son of God. Change these stones here into bread and have something to eat. And uh, Jesus responded with scripture, a quote from the Old Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is so essential to us. It's equated to the food that keeps us alive. Gives us the strength and energy to get through another day. David wrote in this way, your word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is a source of direction for us in our life and the decisions we have to make. Jesus told a story in... um, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the end of that, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 says this. Uh, everyone then who hears these words of mine, Jesus is saying this, everyone who hears my words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat on the house. But the house did not fall because it had been founded on the rock, his word. And then it goes to said, the man who hears my word and doesn't do it is like the man who built his house on the sand. And when the storms come, the house collapses. And I don't know how many people in my life and my years in, in pastorate and ministry I have observed who've made those choices. Are they going to follow and plant their feet on what God says? Or are they going to, they're going to just listen to it and do whatever they want? Those who've chosen to lay the foundation of their life on their own interest and their own desires and their own personal values and wants and comfort have collapsed when difficulty came in their life. It's essential that we abide in God's word. And when we do, we have the promise of Jesus in his words here. When tough times come, we will stand. Because our life is built on the promises of God, the instructions of God, and our response to him. The word is foundational to our life. Paul encouraged the believers to invest themselves in the word in his letter to Colossians. We talked about this uh, back in February, I think, probably here. But uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Abide in it. I have observed a function of of the brain of a human that whatever you put in it is what sits there. And if I just fill my brain, feed my brain with the, with the perspectives of God and his instruction and his promises, those are the things that are going to surface when I'm looking for an answer. Not only that, but we have the promise in, in John chapter 14. Jesus said that when he goes, this, the, the comforter, 
the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will come. And when He comes, He will teach you and He will remind you of all the things that I've said to you. So how is the Spirit of God going to remind us of the things that Jesus said if they're not in us? See, that's, the ascent, that's why it's so essential that we abide in His Word. And when we do, we will know and be able to make a distinction between that which is true and that which is a lie. And knowing what is true and abiding by that truth will result in freedom in our heart and life. That's the text. To Paul's young disciple, Timothy, he said... Be diligent is the literal Greek. In the ESV version, it says, do your best. In the King James that I grew up with, study. Uh, The word study actually isn't there in the Greek, but there it is. So, be diligent, do your best, study to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Be in the word enough that you know you're handling it rightly. All the scripture is inspired, it says. Can I read and understand a text that I'm now in the context of the rest of the Bible? Am I familiar with it? Those are all encouragements. If you abide in my word, then you truly are my disciple. Abiding in his word is evidence of true faith, of trust in Christ. It's interesting that Jesus in this context said, he made the statement, by the way, to some Jews who had believed in what he had been saying. And he said to those who identified with Jesus, uh, expressed that they believed, is my assumption, because it says here they believed, uh, some Jews who believed, um, that uh, to them, he said, a true disciple is one who abides in my word. And I have observed in human behavior and in the church and among peers that um, you can profess something, believe it in your head, and live totally different. I said, what makes a difference is, am I bathed in God's word? Am I conscious of his instruction in my heart and my life? Am I aware of his presence? He's knocking at the door and said, let me in. We're going to sit down and have a meal together. Do Do I recognize I have that option in every day and every moment of enjoying a meal with Jesus? Just by being conscious of his presence and welcome into my life and in my situation, into my decisions. How do I do that if I'm ignorant of his word? So if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And I would say this. If reading the Bible is difficult for you, I would encourage you to try reading a Bible in your own language. Whatever's your heart language, get the scriptures in that language and read it there. Now, if English is your only language... 
and you're reading in a text and you just don't get the words because the vocabulary that's there in the text that you're reading, you don't know and don't understand, so it's not meaningful to you. I could speak up here in all kinds of babble and you wouldn't understand any of my words because you don't know Trenner. See, and that happens even when I speak English. But, but you, get, you get my point. Find a text of the scripture, a paraphrase or something that you can understand. I'd be, I'd be slow to teach from that. But I would encourage you, if getting into the Bible is difficult for you right now, find a paraphrase that's easy language that you can begin picking up some elements of truth from the scriptures and doing that. So I'm just saying, get a book that you can read. And if you need, get a book that can give you an introduction to the Bible. Uh, how it's structured, who wrote what and when, and what are the themes that follow through. Those kind of things may be helpful to you. Wherever you open up and you start reading, you'd have a context of, of what this is. When I just opened up right now, and it says Lamentations. Uh, anybody here know who wrote Lamentations? Yeah. Uh, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet. Uh, why did he have this thing? What's Lamentations? What's that mean? Oh, to lament. So he's, he's writing a regret of stuff and he's complaining to God about what's going on in his life. See, you didn't know that before, but if you knew that and you read Lamentations, it'd be meaningful to you. So I'm just saying if you can get some of that background on the Bible, that would be helpful to you. Sitting down with somebody, maybe tell you, introduce you to how the book is written and, and where it's going, stuff that would be helpful to you. I would say another thing. When you open the Bible, take a posture of getting to know the author. As I read today in this, what can I learn about God? God, what are you showing me about yourself? It's his letter to you. Get to know him. Read his letter. But read it from the perspective of how can I get to know the, know the author? What can I learn about him? The other thing I would do that somebody cued me in into when I was young, and that was to always take notes. Write down your insights about something you wrote. Uh, my first Bible is half printer's ink and half pen ink, because I wrote all over my Bible. I didn't know that this was supposed to be a, a sacred idol. My Muslim friends think that's, a, that's terrible, that I would do something like that. But uh, I just let them know the, li- the word is alive to me, and it, it's real in my life. I can apply it. I can understand it. It comes to me. Take notes. Write insights. Note questions that you have. I have passages that have question marks out in the margin. I go ask somebody who could give me an answer. That helps it come alive. It makes it living in the word. And if that's difficult for you, Find somebody that you can read the book with together and you can talk about what you've read. I'm just trying to give you some practical handles. How do you abide in the word? Because when you do, when it's your intent to be alive in the word, to abide in the word, you are proving the fact that you're a disciple of Jesus. And you're learning the truth from God and that truth is what's going to set you free. It's going to free you up from all the bondage in this life. Our freedom is in God's truth. When we seek to know it and live it, we will begin to experience that freedom. I think of fear. You know, how do I find freedom from fear? I'm always worried about this. I'm concerned about that. It takes me down all the time. And then I have to remember, God, the creator of the universe, is for us. 
He's with us and he's in us. I know that because it says so in the word. He causes all things to work together for good. I know that because it says so in the word. I can do all things through Christ because he gives me the strength to do it. It says so in his word. Those references, by the way, are in your notes. If you happen to pick one up in your bulletin, you can look up those passages for yourself. God's truth sets us free in the inner man, the heart, the mind, the soul, peace, contentment, confidence, courage, energy. All these things that are akin to freedom are always available to us through the promises in God's word. The Pharisees missed it. They answered this statement of Jesus with this. They said, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved by anyone. How is it you say you will become free? And then I want to say, uh, duh. I've read the Bible a bit here. I know some of the history of Israel. What do you mean you've never been enslaved? Well, is this memory loss? Let's see. You were in Egypt for 400 years as slaves. Let's see. You were in Babylon for 70 years as slaves. And now as Jesus is speaking to you for a period of almost 200 years, you've been under Roman rule. What do you mean you've not been enslaved? And then I thought, you know, how many people have I met and tried to share God's love for them and a relationship that God offers to them? And they come back and say, I have no need for God. You do know that God is a creation of man because man needs a God. Well, when that was said to me, I I don't know, just a word came off my mouth. I said, well, some gods are. But my God is grounded in human history. Tracks with a nation. Why Israel? This little sliver of rocky land. Making a difference in the whole world. Still exists today, outnumbered 100 to 1 by all its enemies. And out of this, out of this small nation, this people, men they called prophets made statements about things that were going to happen in the future, 600 years, 1,000 years into the future. Down to exact detail about the life of Jesus predicted his birth and that he would be the one who would suffer for them to grant them freedom and relationship with God. And they didn't get it. And a lot of the people I talked to don't recognize the bondage that they live in today. And then Jesus said to the Jews that we were talking to, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So we went to their heart. I'm not going to talk about Roman bondage right now, and I'm not even going to pass by that, but I'm going to come down to the really core issue. What is your heart and life in bondage to? And that's the sin in your life. Now, sin is not a word you probably don't use a lot, I'm going to guess. You may be here on Sunday, you may be here at church, but during the week you don't talk about that much with anybody. Sin is a rebellious heart toward God. Uh, It's a heart that neglects God, doesn't care about God, doesn't want to know God. It's a heart that uh, knows what God's expectations are and doesn't care and is just flat out disobedient to him, rebellious. Paul defines sin 
in its bondage in, in his uh, writing to the Romans particularly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are rebellious in their heart. Every one of us in this room today, Scripture says, are rebellious in our heart. We want things our way and in our terms and in our time. Without any thought of submission that God may have a purpose in what's happening in our life right now that's for good. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's expectation, his glory. For the wages of sin is death. There's a penalty for our sinful heart and nature that we nurture. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now why would he have to die for us? Because the wages of sin is death. And when you sin, you're going to die. And it says that he died for us. In 1 Peter 2, it says, He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died in our place. He took upon himself all of the condemnation that could come to us for our sinful nature and heart. He took it all upon himself, hung on the cross, and his father judged our sin in him on that cross. First Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Romans 6, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We were once slaves to that sin, in bondage to that sin, and we've been set free by Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. You believe that? Can you embrace that? If that's, if that's a struggle for you, sit with somebody who can walk you through just the history that's there. The, the, what was the meaning of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf? Maybe someone who can get close enough to your heart to know the rebellion in your heart. and You know the pain that that creates in your life. You know the bondage that that is. And you can be free from that. Believing what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross. And how is she going to know that if you don't abide in God's word? a priority in the relationship with God. Jesus went on to say the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. In all of your self-righteousness, he said to the Jews around him, uh, you're headed to hell. But I want you to know if the son sets you free because you trust him, you will be free indeed. And he went after their pride in the passage that continues. But I want 
Slide to Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You've been saved from hell. You've been saved from the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. For by grace, God's graciousness to us, you have been saved through Christ, through faith in him. And that is not of yourselves. That faith, that grace is a gift of God. It's not the result of your working. It's not the result of your doing all kinds of good things, trying to make things right. It's the result of his work, his grace, his gift than us. So none of us have room to boast. There is a truth and there are lies. One brings freedom and one brings bondage. You can follow the truth to freedom. You can recognize the lie and turn from it and believe. I'm going to close with just one uh, short passage here of truth that you can hang on to this week. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's past tense, by the way. God has already blessed us. And then I can ask, why am I still feeling so crappy? Why are things just not going well? Well, maybe it's because I don't have eyes to see what God may be doing in this situation. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before things were even created, God knew you. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. We didn't come in his family. We got adopted. And we got adopted through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. And the word redemption means to be purchased out of slavery. We go to the slave market, and there's a slave that's up front. I'll give you $100 for that. I'll give you $150. We, I bought the slave, and I take the slave, my slave, and I set the slave free because I have, they belong to me. I own them. I can do what I want with them, and I give them their freedom. That's redemption. Bought out of slavery and set free. In love, he predestined us. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And the passage I talked to you about 12 years ago, Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Or trying to keep a law or expectations. Just in faith believe that Jesus did all that needs to be done for you to have a relationship with him. Knocking at your heart's door. Let me in. Let's sit down and enjoy a meal together. If my word abides in you, you are truly my disciples. And when my word abides in you, you'll know the truth. And that truth will set you free as you live your life. 
Father, thank you for uh, the promises of your word. Thank you for the instructions in your word. Thank you for helping, calling us our attention to how important your word is to us, that we want to enjoy the freedom that's ours in you. Whatever decisions we face, whatever difficulties in our life, whatever things that are really going well, Lord, we can rejoice in you and give thanks and know that you're watching after us and that you cause all things to come together for good. And they honor you and they build each other up. Help us, Lord, to live life like that. And we thank you in Jesus. Amen.